Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studio of WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo. Over the next hour, I'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, this mess is a house. Singer, songwriter, Zola Jesus is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film with you every week on WHUPFM.org. And evergreen, Murmur is evergreen. (laughs) We should all be so lucky and so green. iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We have a website, murmurradio.com. We have social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. If you go to murmurradio.com, click on this button that says do not click here. That's a Jedi mind trick. Click there. And if you're so inclined to click, you'll see do you have a murmur? Meaning if you have a topic you'd like me to tackle, to explore, to investigate, I will match your topic with a guest. It's key to say the topic I will match with a guest and I'll give you full credit murmurradio at gmail.com if you want to be direct about it if you're if you're just not in the mood to play games and you just want to get right to it murmurradio download us subscribe welcome today on the show Zola Jesus singer songwriter her most recent record is so amazing and we're going to talk about that today but it's uh, it's really a kind of uh, trick because the trick is to talk about something current and frame it in something larger and longer. And Zola is so cool. And one of the traps I've set for her is I know how much she loves movies. So I want to talk to her about movies, but movies as a sort of appetite for destruction to, to coin an album. Uh, we'll talk about all that. Today's topic, as Zola will be the guest, today's topic are limits, limitations. I look at it this way. There are two types of limits and limitations. There's the internal that we either place on ourselves or we live within, nature, nurture, or there, or, and there are the external. External could be geography, could be money, could be knowledge, 
could be technological, could be social. But again, some of these limits will grab from both buckets. It could be economic, uh, could be parental, could be filial. You know, again, some of them will grab from the internal and the external. But I want to talk about limits in a different way and propose an idea that we can work with going forward. I'll, I'll present it to uh, Zola, Zola Jesus, but I also want to, I want to speak it out loud to us as if no one's listening. Limits, you know, when we think of film as, as a metaphor, I find when I teach filmmakers, if I give them an assignment, uh, an assignment such as go into an open field, bring a camera and film something, it's a very intimidating assignment because filmmakers and, and uh, image capturers, th- they are trying to frame space. So when you give them space, you're working against their need to frame because that form of art has a frame around it. But it's not the only f- form of art that has a frame around it. Music has a frame around it. Uh, performance, physical performance has a frame around it. Painting, literally, often has a frame around it. Uh, so we have different forms of frames. Everything is limited, and some of us love those limitations. Others don't. I want to redesign the concept of limitations for those of you who f- may be listening and feel, oh, I have plenty of limits. Well, let's look at the limits as the charisma. Let's look at the limits not as a box, not as a cage, but as a, a source of magnification, a magnifying glass, if you will. And when I think of art forms in this way, and I think of the limitations within them, whether it's film, music, performance, writing, your publisher may say, no, you cannot write a 900-page manuscript. It will not sell. It has to be 700 pages. Cut, cut. So uh, there are limits in every one of these disciplines. There are, diff- there are limitations in life as well. Aside from artistic uh, pursuits, there are limits to any profession or any personal trajectory. But today we're going to look at look at it through art, and you can apply it. The limits are the charisma. Charlie Chaplin once said, if we lose our limitations, we lose half of our charisma. Filmmakers from Chaplin Wells, uh, the Nouvelle Vague, uh, flaunted limitation, and uh, they found the charisma within it. On a personal level, it's interesting, and I, and I want to talk to Zola about this, because her album, Okapi, is so personal. It's such a interesting, literal and figurative expose into people and circumstances in her life, the source material were um, dark, or is dark. But again, who's to say? I can't uh, apply a tone to someone else's problems, but I know the record was made during a a moment of uh, a streak of great turmoil. She was fighting depression. This is all on the record. Uh, Her uncle had tried to kill himself twice. Another close friend was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So there's a lot of DNA, metaphoric DNA that went into this. But, you know, when, when those sorts of hurricanes blow into our lives, those sort of emotional hurricanes or the feeling of limitlessness, limitation, sometimes art and the box 
is the way we deal with it. You know, sometimes the uber focusing takes us away from the chaos. You know, it's almost when you think of it on a meta on a meditative level, you're focusing on your breath, right? You're hearing the noise, the world, the life noise, but you're focused. You're coming back to your breath. So art is coming back to that breath. It's that space, and it, it's this is very poetic, and I'm I'm glad, of course, because I'm speaking these words. But there's also very mundane forms of filters and limits. Historically, one of my favorite periods in American filmmaking is during the Hayes coding of films, the censorship coding, to see how writers circumvented those codes. You know, Maltese Falcon circumvented a lot of codes that had to do with homosexuality, characters being gay. The, the original source material for um, Maltese Falcon, the Peter Lorre character, Joel Cairo, is gay. In the movie, they couldn't be so expressive. So I like when authors, and it's it's not just about the deep dive coding, it's also, you know, how things are circumvented. And everything is a circumvention. So if you see it as a circumvention, you are admitting defeat. Why not redraw the box? Why not take an open field, redraw it down to its frame, and then deal with that frame as a universe? So often we feel that we're being limited and I always tell my students, no, you've redrawn the map. Now this map exists. Explore within the map. So today with Zola Jesus, I want to talk to her about a, a lot of these storms, internal, external, and how the limits of a craft or a, of a form can buoy that and could can be a magnifying glass rather than a another prelude to a tantrum. Another reason to to uh, rail against your life or your art, your craft. I think Zola's taken those limitations and and uh, shoehorned them into great art. Film students of mine who are listening to this are going to laugh, so I'll 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 just tell them don't laugh when you hear one of my favorite Fellini quotes, and they'll laugh because I said this all the time. Fellini was once asked, uh, "What what would you do if you had to make a movie about an omelet?" He said, if I had to make a movie about an omelet, it would still be about me. So the limitations are subscript to everything else. There will always be limitations. If James Cameron wanted $100 trillion to make a movie, at some point I'm sure he wanted $200 trillion to make a movie. There's always limits for art, for life. Let's redraw that box. Today, here's the trap. I, I mentioned I set a trap for Zola. The trap was I saw her really amazing Criterion collection list that she you know, she chose her top 10 Criterion films and we'll skip stones over the, those choices today. And once I saw that, I knew I could hook her. I knew I could hook her in. Uh, she's amazing. And I look forward to speaking about cinema, music, and limitations with her today on the show Zola Jesus now this Howdy Howdy to you Beautiful evening Yeah She want to thank you for coming all the way up here to see me from that nice hotel downtown No problem What's on your mind? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? 
whatever. Man's attitude, man's attitude goes some ways the way his life will be. Is that something you might agree with? Sure. Now, did you answer because that's what you thought I wanted to hear? Or did you think about what I said and answer because you truly believe that to be right? I agree with what you said, truly. What'd I say? That a man's attitude determines to a large extent how his life will be. So since you agree, you must be a person who does not care about the good life. How's that? We'll stop for a little second and think about it. Can you do that for me? <laughs> okay. I'm thinking. No, you're not thinking. You're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking. Now I want you to think and stop being a smart aleck. Can you try that for me? Look, where's this going? What do you want me to do? There's sometimes a buggy. How many drivers does a buggy have? One. So let's just say I'm driving this buggy. And if you fix your attitude, you can ride along with me. Okay. I want you to go back to work tomorrow. You were recasting the lead actress anyway. Audition many girls for the part. When you see the girl that was shown to you earlier today, you will say, this is the girl. The rest of the cast can stay. That's up to you. But that lead girl is not up to you. Now you will see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Good night. What were the skies like when you were young? They went on forever. When I, we lived in Arizona, and the skies always had little fluffy clouds in them, and uh, they were long and clear, and there were lots of stars at night. And uh, when it would rain, they were beautiful, the most beautiful skies, as a matter of fact. Uh, the sunsets were purple and red and yellow and on fire, and the clouds would catch the colors everywhere. to this show on a weekly basis, you know two things are pretty much facts. Fact one is uh, movies have ruined my life, and that's just period. That's not that's beyond debate. It's beyond point of view. They've screwed me up beyond repair. The other fact that seems to be beyond debate is if you have 
one of those specifically curated criterion collection lists, then you're really like cooking with gas. So I love going to those lists because to me, the biggest brains and the most interesting thinkers are on that list. And today's guest is on that list. And she's on my list because her album this year just... I think it's my favorite, and I hate saying that because it sounds so douchey to say it to the guests, but it's, <laughs> it is amazing, by the way, and we're going to get to that. Thank you. The artist giggling on the other side. She is an artist to me of the highest order. I want to talk to her about cinema, but also about the sort of push-pull of inner-outside, like creating work that's personal, because no one to me is doing it in a more interesting way than today's guest. Please welcome to Murmur, Ms. Zola Jesus. Zola, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. And, you know, I think there is a kind of weird uh, CSI of looking at someone's movie choices and going backwards a little bit. Uh, the piece I want to start out with, though, is watching Eraserhead when you were 12. Now, what brilliant or neglectful adult allows that to happen? And <laughs> what the he- that's amazing. I love that. Do you, I mean, it sounds like you recall watching Eraserhead, which is on your list. Can you, can you go back to like the circumstances? Was it, Mom, I want to see this, or was it something else? No, it was more happenstance. I mean, I actually grew up in a pretty sheltered house, so I didn't see a lot of horror movies. A lot of the classic horror movies I haven't actually seen because I was – it was censored when I was younger, and so I just never got around to it. So it, it definitely wasn't that sort of laissez-faire household. Rather, um, my brother more insidiously was able to watch those movies and had an interest in Eraserhead because of the kind of um, obscure nature of it at mm. the time. It wasn't, you know, we could only get like a Korean bootleg ordered through the mail. And so um, he got it, and he was just a couple years old. He was a year older than me, and... Um, so we watched it together, and um, that's kind of how I was indoctrinated into that sort of film. And it terrified me, but also more than anything, it intrigued me. And I just, I ended up watching it over and over, trying to understand it. And um, it took me a long time to figure it out, but that's what I liked about it. And I quickly became like kind of hungry for for that sort of like experience watching movies because it's like it didn't reveal itself at once, you know, and that was new for me at that age. Looking at this sort of a, from a longer view, and and we could talk about, you know, how Mr. Lynch uh, remixed one of your songs, which is pretty kick-ass. The song itself is kick-ass, but the fact that he reached out and did that is pretty much a sign of the cross, so to say. But um, t- just to, to step back a little bit, does it get interesting, or do you think you can know too much? When I think of Eraserhead, he was married with a kid, and he was in LA, he had moved from Philly, and he hated Philly, and and he was married with a baby, and this baby in his life, though he loved, presumably, assumingly, also provided a lot of tension. Now, the more you got to know about Lynch, not to draw too firm a line, did that help your understanding of Eraserhead? Or did you think, no, I want to go back to when I was 12 and I didn't know any better? Even after meeting him, I still feel as mystified <laughs> as day yeah. one. So, you know, there, I think there are some people that are just innately that, like uh enigmatic or like have such a specific interior logic that you know is very unique to them and so that's really special but at the same time i do think that there's something to be said about let for letting the piece speak on its own and not really having that backstory and that's why i really respect the fact that he never explained what the baby in a racer head was made of right, you know and i right. think that just keeping some things left to the imagination you know it just it, it preserves the surreality of what you're seeing. And that's the beauty of movies. That's why I love cinema, you know, is because 
you can do things that can't happen in real life. And why, why demystify that, you know? I had Fred Elms on the show, Fred shot Eraserhead, and he, he's not telling either. Like, I try to go through the back door, and I'm going to try to have Sissy Spacek on the show, because she was like a PA on that movie. Um, so amazing. Amazing. What a cool, like, universe, and it was shot at AFI, you know, and now if you shoot a movie like that at AFI, you get arrested, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I do want to cherry pick a little bit of the list and kind of dovetail it back to you. The list is extraordinary, but... I was I was most pointed towards sort of the pieces of, again, for want of a better adjective, were autobiographical. You talked about Winter Light, the amazing Bergman film, and you talked about uh, the first time uh, you saw it, you were working yourself through a depression, and the film kind of did something to that real-life piece. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and, and I'm less interested, I guess, or I'm less trying to put you in a personal place than... What is that thing again? What is that push-pull between being a human being, ingesting art, and then being asked to create really formal art? Because I think there's nothing more formal than a song. It's not an improvisatory thing. It may be, but it's it's put under a jar. So let's kind of take this in parts. When you first saw Winter Light, did that open up some sinus of what you were going through in your life, and how, how did it, if so? I was watching a lot of Bergman, and... Um and I was kind of going through ones that I had never seen before. And one of, one of those was Winter Light. And that one actually struck me. And it's now one of my favorite Bergman movies just because of its, um, the simplicity of the story. But it's so, there's something about it that was so relatable at the time. And, and it's not just kind of falling out of faith, like the grit, the big G faith, but it's like falling out of faith with yourself mm. and with your purpose. Mm. And that was something that was, I was going through myself in a different way, you know, and so that that movie spoke to me on a really real level because of that. But I think also just to answer your other question, you know, as as a sing as a you know, I, I never call myself this, but as a singer songwriter, I am just creating songs, and they are very literal, you know, because I'm, you know, it is a it, like you said, it is very much a form, and there's structure to it, and you know, part of me likes to be beholden to that structure because it gives it gives some clarity to the chaos yeah, and I think all yeah. art is chaos. And so to work with form is kind of liberating because it allows you to make sense of things and to puzzle piece you, your own interior world together that you can't, I, I can't make sense of my world on, on my own. And that's why I make music, you know? Mm. Um, but it's also interesting because it's, um, so much is uh, impressionistic. And so it's just about trying to understand what you're even the story you're even trying to tell, you know, and I, and I end up finding out so much about myself just through watching movies, like watching Winter Light by Bergman made me understand my own struggles better as a human, you know? And so the power of that for, for someone else to delineate or clarify your own struggles is such like a magical uh, aspect of art. And that's why I'm so drawn to it as a, audience and as a maker it's really cool and i talk to students about that a lot that the limitations of the form or as you say the the boundary lines of the form are are the charisma it's funny you know i was thinking a little bit about your training in opera or at least your gravitation and your work as opera i always find as a total layperson to the form of opera that opera is the most interesting 
contrast of high emotion and form in the sense of, you know, I'm going to give you the dumb version of how I see opera, which is awful, I warn you. When I see <laughs> someone giving their guts to an aria, I still can't tell if they're telling me bad news or good news. You know, and, yeah. and maybe that's because I own a bulldog and he looks the same when he's happy and when he's sad. But there's something about that tension which is really riveting. What about that? I mean, I'm uber simplifying it, but when you sing opera, when you trained, which to me it's like rigor, the rigor of training, uh-huh. is there something in that as well? Well, like high emotion in a Dixie cup. Not that it's a Dixie cup, but do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Does opera fall under that premise for you as well? Tidal waves of emotion in a, in a swimming pool. I mean, yeah, I think opera, I mean, my, I was drawn to opera because of the technique, the discipline of opera, of operatic singing. Yeah. So I, it wasn't actually the opera itself that drew me, but it was the, the mastery of the technique of music. And that, that was, it's like if, I wanted to study music as a child, so I wanted to go all in. And that's all in. You know, operatic <laughs> yeah, singing is. is all or nothing. That it's is, like yeah. you're either engaged or you're disengaged. And so that that was what drew me initially. Um, and then as I grew to understand the form of opera as, um, you know, and I like to think of it as a, uh, I'm going to, oh, man, I don't speak German, so I'm going to slaughter this word. But slaughter. it's Wagner's guess. Yes, Justin's work. Oh, yes, Munster's work. That's it's my favorite. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> if you pour some, if you pour some gravy over that, that's some good stuff. I know, right? <laughs> um, sorry, y'all. sorry, all German Germans and German speakers, it's but a, um, it's, it's the great work, and that's what that's what Wagner was going for with his with the Ring Cycle was was having it be the totality of all art forms together, mm. and so you have sound you have visual it's there's dance there's just every single aspect of of art and of expression put into one thing and that's then what i like actually gravitated towards later on it's varsity it's not jv i mean it's funny when you know you're sitting there i'm thinking of beethoven and and the mozart they were composing for god you know, whatever mm-hmm. your whatever your one's religious belief are, they felt their audience was God, him himself, and and I always think about that. And I'm not a very religious person, but when I lived in Italy and you see these huge statues, Michelangelo th- and Da Vinci, they thought God was seeing these. You know, that's the mm-hmm. the scale and the scope, which I thought was really interesting. And I'll give you a really quick funny anecdote. One of my favorite quotes from Chaplin about his work is someone asked him, "What is your work about?" He said, "My work is how the gods see humans." Humans, which I th- mm-hmm. if you want to like boil down a description of a filmmaker that is perfect for his work you know this is how they s- see the you know the human stupidity of it all um so I, I i like that you you went like for the varsity i love that i think that's totally yeah. cool i do want to i do want the high dive i want to check yeah. i want to um cherry pick a little bit because i wouldn't be a good cinema dork if i didn't talk to you a little bit about russian cinema and don't be scared this isn't a test it's just more of a a bit of a potential geek geek fest and you know i located a little bit through your heritage your family heritage your Mm -hmm. uh, mother's slovenian and correct any Mm -hmm. of this and your dad uh, is russian german does that sound right that's correct the risk game of it all um Mm -hmm. and then obviously the ukraine is a part of it tell me you know i i think a lot of modern like you're an old soul dude but i think a lot of modern young thinkers don't see why russian and eastern european and ukrainian cinema was so important historically would you describe it to an alien who just landed from a radio head song like how would you describe what is russian cinema to you oh man sorry oh, well it's it's hard but it's easy i would definitely say painterly yeah it's painterly it's 
it's slow and it's all about the human experience, good and bad, mostly bad. It's realism to the highest extreme, to the furthest reaches of extremism in terms of the realism of it. Um, and it's, it's brutalist. And, and that's what I love about it. It's, it's extremely inaccessible. I found Russian cinema and I've tried so hard. I've, I've watched a lot of it. It's very inaccessible unless you're Russian, <laughs> unless you get it. But, um, but I love it. And, you know, but, but at, at most it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. You will never see more beautiful imagery. You will never see more stunning cinematography. Mm. Like just one shot could be held for five minutes, but it is the most beautiful shot you'll ever see in your life. And that <laughs> I find it to be yeah. so so incredibly rewarding for that reason, even though it's so hard to sit through sometimes. You, you reminded you remind me of a thousand things. Speaking <laughs> with Zola Jesus, I did a talk with Marina Abramovich, and we talked mm-hmm. about uh, this the Parajanov film, uh, Color of Pomegranates. I don't know if mm-hmm. you know the film. Oh yeah, but, we, but you say oh yeah, and most people are like, what the hell? And I don't mean that. That's not an indictment of either of us. I guess my point is, a, it's a masterwork. B, there's so many masterworks in general, people don't know. But what what Marina said said, which would reminded me of what you said, is she said, you're watching and you don't really even understand the codes the way I do. And she wasn't being insulting. She yeah. understood the nature, the endemic gesture. And, and every movie has that, right? I know you talk a lot about Japanese horror film. There's a codification to, to all this imagery. Mm-hmm. Does that turn you on or does that, but can that alienate you? That cuts both ways, doesn't it? Do you ever think, I don't get this and God damn it, I wish I did or stop saying this because I don't get it. Oh, yeah. And, that, and I think that's what that's what uh, attracts me to film, you know, and that's why I like it is because it makes me understand culture better. It makes me understand the disparity of culture and the disparity of experience based on how you grew up, what language you speak. I mean, even just reading Russian literature is is nearly impossible, even as a Russian uh, speaker, um, as a second second language, because just even the turns of their speech are are indebted to their history. And so you've got to know about something that happened in Kiev and Rus mm-hmm. to understand the joke they're making in a, in a novel written in 20, 2005, you know, it's just like yeah. their, their language is just so specific that you need to grow up there to really understand it. And so I feel that way also with, with any sort of foreign cinema that I watch, but there's something about that. That's so, um, as alienating as it is, it's also very, uh, uh, it's very uh, intoxicating. And this, to me, is what draws your work to cinema in the sense of music to cinema. They're both post-lingual and pre-lingual in the sense of I can listen to your song. Let's say I don't speak English and I could still be moved by it. Let's say, you know, let's say you made a movie in, in Afrikaans and I didn't understand it. I could still get it because it's codified. So I, I think, you know, you are a cousin, you know, cinema and music are cousins in that way. They, they're agnostic, you know, music, you're loved all over the world. You know, you're gonna, you're about to leave the U.S. for a, a bit of a, a travel for your work and they're going to love you even if they don't speak English. So I think that's really, you're, you're on the spectrum, which I think is exciting. Before we leave Russian cinema and get into a little bit of your work and your, your life in a sense, Tell me about Tarkovsky, though. I, I think, you know, there's not a goddamn joke in any of his movies, but here's the thing. You know, if, if you want to, to me, I always think of it this way, and, and it makes sense. You know, if you want to be on a desert island and understand cinema, I think, you know, you, you can bring Hitchcock, but you, you have to bring Kurosawa, and you have to have Tarkovsky. Mm. Why, why, 
I'm assu- I'm going to ask you: Is Tarkovsky for you some Andre Tarkovsky, someone who's essentially cinematic? And if so, why? He is. He is my Maria Callas. He is my like. He is my end all be all in some ways, and and I I don't really understand why. I mean, I think it's just <laughs> the way in which he tells stories. That in the way and and again, his own interior logic is so unique to him, and. Um, I can't even, you know, that's not even something that I can really understand why I'm so drawn to him and what is it about his work? Is he truly cinematic? Because it's like, yes, but it depends on how you define cinema, you know? And I think in terms of how he tells stories and how he uses the moving image, you know, I think hands down is masterly beyond, beyond anything else that I've seen um, because it's dealt in a way that is so, oh, what's the word? I mean, so just like, um, I can't even put it into words. I, I, I think I, I think like, he would feel flattered by your struggle because I don't think it was. The, I can't. Yeah, and it's frustrating because you know I've seen. <laughs> I feel like I'm watching seen, one of his movies right now. Actually, no, I, know, I mean I know right, what you're exactly. saying. It's that tension between knowing and not knowing. It's so physical. The things he does is so physical, but they're still so mysterious, and that's incongruous. Yeah. How could something so materialized be stalker? Um, exactly. It's yeah. such a. I was phys- just going to bring that up. It's Talk just, a little bit about it's like, that. Yeah. It's like living in someone else's dream. Yeah. It's like yeah. not only watching their dream but you're, you're living inside of it. And there's, there's watching a movie and then there's living a movie. And very few directors, I think, or filmmakers have that magic touch, magic ability to make you feel like you're actually encompassing the world that they're creating for you. And that is what I find so unspeakable about Tarkovsky and about several other directors, but especially him, because it is a universe that he's building and he's inviting you in. And, and I can't even really explain how or why the, the technical aspects of how that's happening. But it's just, I think it's just the way that he thinks. And even when I look at his Polaroids, I have a book of his Polaroids because oh, wow. he took them on when he was traveling and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's the same way. Just looking at his, I feel like I'm there. When I see a Polaroid of of Italy and the mist over the mountains, and or there's like a statue covered with fabric, I feel like I'm there and just in the picture alone. And, and very few people have that have that ability to communicate so much just through their their lens and that's and he's got it so i that's all i can say <laughs> you've said it uh, all I, it's a beautiful uh, aria to use the word again how much time have you spent in russia oh very very little just several days what was that like and and it's not about you being an authority or not i'm just wondering no, like yeah. your first contact of it because it's it's probably such an emotional idea for you my ancestry has always been what it was but it wasn't until i began to travel in russia and eastern europe that I started to realize how much of who I am as a person is indebted to that land mm. and how when I go there, I feel like I'm home. It reminds me of where I grew up because it's very similar in Wisconsin. And it reminds me of how I grew up, how the people act, what they eat. And so it just kind of felt like this bizarro other world, other option for where my life could have been if my family didn't move over here. Mm. But it felt strangely familiar at the same time, like I had already been there. And so it's, and so even if I go to Poland or Czech Republic or, or deeper into Eastern Europe or Slovenia, even, of course, you know, I just feel like this familiarity and I feel like this this um, home. I feel like a sense of home. And, and so it, it was very strange. And all the time that I spent in, in Russia was very strange, but in a very good way, like in a very like a wholesome, 
connected way. We're speaking with Zol Jesus. The next beat is about home. That's a word I talk about a lot on the show. How do you define home? Where my family is, I guess, loosely. That's the first. I mean, there's so many different layers of what home is. You know, it could just be a smell. But for me, it's definitely where my family is because we're so deeply close. But yeah. Who? How do you define family? Um, my immediate family. B- flesh and blood, DNA, mm-hmm. genes. Uh, yep. Raised in Merrill, Wisconsin, and correct any of this, right? Um, are are you in, are you're back in Wisconsin now? Mm-hmm. How is being home? been for you you know we're in this time now where a lot more people are living at home with family in all it's good and bad and ugly mm-hmm. what are the rules are you ripped back and forth in the sense of who you were as a child and who you are now has there been a kind of interesting conflict between time present and past the fact that now you're home i built a house on the land where i grew up so i'm now separated from my home home my childhood home but in the beginning i was living with my parents while my house was being built and that definitely was having to uh, redefine my role as a daughter, you know, and and my parents had to redefine their roles as parents because, you know, you're literally living in their house and that's a different thing. But moving back to the land has been interesting because it, I thought it would be more, I thought it would be more stranger. I thought it'd be stranger. I thought it'd be more difficult. I thought it would be more macabre in a way to be back home. And, and here I am again, full circle, you know, but but in some senses, being here just is so, so, I mean, it's 200 acres of wood. So I'm not only on the land where I grew up, but I'm in 200 acres of untouched land. And so there's just this feeling of complete and utter calm and serenity being here. And it feels like, it feels like just fitting into, what's the, it's almost like just fitting your weird puzzle piece into the exact spot where it belongs. Mm. And then feeling like you can just kind of exhale and look out the window or be in the woods. And I just feel completely at peace. Like this is where I belong. And so it's been a struggle to reassert sort of my identity in the context of this is where I grew up. This is where I played and became a child and became an adolescent and all that. But at the same time, it's like, it kind of feels like living in the woods, time isn't linear in the way that it is in in society. Time is, is constantly happening, but it's happening all at the same time in a way. It's like, it just, it doesn't feel like time passes. It just feels like everything is. And that's helpful in, 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 for my own mental health and also just, you know, in general for moving back here. You, you were yeah. you were saying that beautiful uh, piece of script about being home and I'm thinking of Antichrist. Sorry, I, I don't mean to bum you mm-hmm. out. See, see how movies have ruined my life? I can't take a nice moment <laughs> that you're stating to me and not think of a... F- effing Lars von Trier movie but I was I was thinking of Antichrist I love it. well I was thinking of Antichrist in a different way apocalyptic emotions apocalyptic ideas and I and I thought of something von Trier said that I wanted to get your thought on uh, von Trier the movie Melancholia have you have you seen Melancholia with mm-hmm. Kirsten? yeah so I don't know how much you know about the backstory about that film um, he a th- his therapist and he were talking about the fact that when the world ends people with depression will be okay because it's at that moment the world will be in balance. So the outside world and the inside world will actually be in balance and everyone around them will crumble. So if you look at that movie through that prism, it's quite fascinating. You have Kirsten Dunst who's being ripped apart emotionally. And then when it's clear that the world is about to end, she's the most serene person. 
I guess two questions. What do you think about that concept? Because we're talking a lot about push-pull in universes on, on the show today. Um, do you think that's uh, poetry too poetic by half? Or do you think that's an intriguing premise? Or do you think Von Trier just needs to up the medication? What do you think about all that? <laughs> or well, maybe all of the all above. The above. But, <laughs> but I definitely find that really fascinating. I never heard that before. And it makes total sense, you know. It, 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 yeah. it does. Would you, would you work with Von Trier? Yeah, I mean, this, he's a tricky one. He's a tricky one because... And recently of, even trickier, which yeah. I... Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's hard because I'm actually a huge fan of his work. Yeah, and me too. Um, it's hard for me to separate, or it's easy for me to separate people's personal lives with what they create. It's easy. As someone that likes very difficult work, it's mm. very... It's very common that people that make difficult work are difficult people. And so it's like, at some point you need to draw the line and go, okay, well, I appreciate what this person's done. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of Wagner. I mean, I, of course I have to separate <laughs> that, but you know, yeah, yeah, so, um, but at the same time it's tricky, but yeah, I am generally, I'm, I'm quite a, quite a big fan of his work. Well, for those of you listening, we're speaking with, uh, Zol Jesus, um, the, the, the framework and, you know, because I don't know when people are going to be hearing this, but, uh, Bjork recently said that making a film, she was slightly, you know, she was anonymous saying made a film with a Danish filmmaker and I'm not <laughs> laughing at what she said. I'm just laughing. Yeah. Uh, of course we know who she was referring to. She yeah. was sexually assaulted. Um, and it, I think it's, it is tricky cause I think dancer in the dark, I mean, I was ready to pitch to you dancer in the dark too. I think you would be an incredible, I mean, I could see you <laughs> in that role. I mean, the form it's tough with Von Trier too, you mm-hmm. know, I'm convinced he made Dogville just to put a tire iron around Nicole Kidman. I am convinced oh, and not about her. I just think he wants to show you, look what I can do to a Hollywood star. I, you know, yeah. I'm not saying it's not gendered, but it is tricky because we need ideas to push us, but we all have lines, don't we? Um, yeah. And that's okay. It's We're not being selective. We all need to have lines, don't we? Definitely. But I think that it's still fair. And this is why I love art is because it's a, it's a sacred space. Yeah. For whatever you believe in, whoever you are, it's a, it's a sacred space to metabolize that, you know, and, and to represent it in a way that, you know, should be harmless because it is a representation. But of course, there's so much that's happening behind the scenes that you can't ignore. Um, and that's that's when it gets tricky, but yeah. Well, I, I do think yeah. there's some silver lining here. I think, and again, to get back to the theme, because this chat was really about me, I think you noticed that, that it, <laughs> illusion is a tricky thing, you know, and these are artists and these are metaphors, but it, to know the people, we need to know the people. Speaking with Zol Jesus, if I could put you at a dinner table, who else would I put? I would put Matthew Barney at the same dinner table. And again, <laughs> nowadays I'm scared to put anyone together because I don't know if Matthew's a good dude or not. I just don't know the guy. He is. He is a good dude. Well, tell me a little bit about your love to, you know, plus or minus about his work because I was thinking of Crim Master 3. Crim Master to me is one of the great cinematic achievements ever full stop period mm-hmm. end of story but you performed in the guggenheim and crim master three is set in the guggenheim tell me a little bit about matthew barney's work and this yes maybe is a little bit of a segue out of bjork into matthew barney but are you a fan of matt matthew's work yeah oh yeah huge fan huge fan actually i had the pleasure of working with him uh, a couple months ago for a um performance at, in, at his studio in Long Island City, oh, and that cool. was really cool to meet him and, and to work with him. Um, and he's, yeah, he's a lovely dude, and, and just as sort of, just as you'd expect from his work. Um, 
but I, you know, I've always been, as soon as I'd seen Craymaster and drawing restraint, restraint nine, I was very inspired by his work. And, and again, the totality of the work, which I, it's so hard these days to make something that is so deeply ambitious. You know, it's just one of those things where I can't be articulate right now, but it's like, it's one of those things where you're just watching it. You're just like, how did this get made? Not in a bad way. No, I know. You know what I mean? You're just like, that's a compliment. I even even asked him, I'm like, man, how did this get made? Because Uh, this is like, thank God that stuff like this can get made. It's just a testament to, to great ambition and, and great ideas. And, um, yeah, again, can't be articulate about it, but, but I think I find his work very, um, very, uh, hypnagogic in a way. It's like, it's just borders so many different rationalizations like you can't even really rationalize what it is because it's so so bizarre in a good way well you're you know i will say something as if you're not here what good christ that record okovi am i pronouncing that right okovi or yeah i'm gonna use your same words against you what is the the prescription for that in the sense of you took pieces of your life that are so personal and parts of other people's lives that are so personal to them. Now, you didn't name names. It's not about that. But you've talked about the backstory very candidly. You know, that to me is high ambition. I think you're ambitious. I think you're brave. I think you're every bit as brave as a Matthew Barney. And I mean that respectfully to everybody. Do you think you are? This record is a hard one to talk about in terms of courage because um, because it was, it's difficult because I felt like I needed to make those songs, not for a record, not for the public, but I felt like I needed to write those songs because that's, again, like how I was saying in the beginning, how I make sense of my, my own struggles and the struggles around me. And so it was just my utility to write those songs. And, um, I, you know, was it brave to put it out in the, wor- in the world and to publicize it? I mean, that's something that I still wonder, was that the right thing to do? I mean, my uncle is... is you know, I asked his permission and, and he's been very happy to share his struggle and to share his story because he hopes that it can help other people. And so I'm grateful for that. But um, he tried to take his life twice. Am I misremembering it? Mm-hmm. At the same time, it is my family. You know, it's a real tragedy that happened to my family. And even, um, you know, I, I had a music video that uh, for Siphon, which is about about his second suicide attempt. And you know, my mom called me up and said, I, I just watched the video and it's very triggering. Like, I remember cleaning the blood off the walls. I, re- I did that, you know, I had to clean up after that. And, you know, and it's a hard thing to put my family through to remind them. But at the same time, it's healing. I think it's healing for everybody. And, and is that brave? I mean, in some ways, you kind of have to take, take that chance because it's either brave or, or you just you know, drove a nail into your family. <laughs> well, well, well two, two things. You, you do have to, I, I have to split hairs with you on one thing. It can be brave and wrong, brave and right. So, you know, mm-hmm. in the sense of, I asked you if it was brave, you said, well, I don't, I still don't know if it was the right thing to do. But my new friend, that wasn't the question. And you answered the question. It was brave. Yeah. R- the, the, the just part of it, that's with the gods. That's neither, you you know, the, that's not even relevant to our talk. I'm I'm excited by mm-hmm. your bravery uh, because you, you can, can fail and be brave because if you fail you were still brave it doesn't disqualify that you know and I love artists like you because I think I, I hate to say this because to me you're such an advanced form of the artist species you are you are you don't seem like you're afraid of failing you know and that's a liberating thing now and we need that was there a producer saying no don't go there 
was there was there a label saying no or a publicist saying good how am i going to publicize this stuff oh no not i mean not not the people that i work with awesome. like i don't i don't operate in that sphere where people are telling are worried about commercial liability so i'm i'm grateful <laughs> because i am I'm definitely. You're a you commercial know, liability. I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but at the same time, it's like it's more the questions that I have to ask myself. You know, yeah. is this something that and and not not about whether it's right or wrong, but um, to me, I feel like music, at least maybe the kind of music I make, it, music is more functional than movies, mm. I, or at least maybe it's just the way that I take in movies and the way that I take in music. But because I think music has always been this kind of like, it's older. And so it's served different purposes, but mm -hmm. it's always kind of felt like it's served a purpose. Whereas I think movies have always been entertainment and people have had a little bit more patience for letting a movie envelop you. Whereas music has been much more functional. Like you said, people would make music for the gods. They would make music yeah. for, yeah. for spirituality. It was not, it was only, it's only been secular for a very short amount of time. And so, That's right. you know, I do feel like I have this burden to make music function in one way or another in people's lives in a pragmatic way, not just in like this abstracted, you know, uh, cinematic way. That swerves yeah. you away from narcissism, which is, I think, what I like most <laughs> about you. And again, narcissism, ego is a noun. Narcissism is, a, is an insult. I miss my point is what, mm -hmm. what I like about your work. And I, Pour through all of it in advance of this. Um, it's it, it it is almost. It's not rhetorical, but it's it's not pitying. I don't feel there's pity. There's an empathy of pity, which I love, and that's why knowing about the backstory was even more interesting because it wasn't you falling apart. It was you coming together. And and I'll just say one other thing, one other question, and then we'll say goodbye. You've been so generous with your time speaking with Zola Jesus. It's funny. I was thinking, you know, about your uncle. And I, again, this is so effed up that I bring it back to movies. I'm so sorry, but I was. No, I was, that's what we're talking about. I was wondering about. We're talking about <laughs> I'm trying to talk about. I was thinking about the movie Dersu Uzala. Have you seen this movie, the Kurosawa movie? Yes. I was. My, yeah. Hey, do, you know, I drew up a list, and you've seen them all. Because I'm thinking she'd like this movie. She'd like this movie. She, like a, you need your own film festival. But B, for those of people listening, <laughs> the reason why I bring our focus here is because it's a masterwork. It's also Kurosawa with a fully Russian-speaking crew shot in basically Siberia after mm -hmm. two suicide attempts. Crazy. Uh, I didn't I didn't know that. He could, That's actually the only Kurosawa film I've ever seen. Full he, disclosure. Well, he I love Full Disclosure and Personal Liability. Those are her two next singles. Uh, this is a news <laughs> we're breaking news today. But, you know, he couldn't get a movie made in Japan. No one would pay for him. This is a Kurosawa. This is like the Mount Rushmore cinema. And he tried to kill himself and he resurrected himself. What do you think about that? Does that add to your viewing of that film, Dersu Uzala, the physical, I mean, there's risk. And Kurosawa, I'll just say one last thing, I promise. It's just, I hate film geeks like you because it makes me want to talk more, not less. But his assistant said every night after shooting, uh, Kurosawa used to go home and cry during that movie. Oh, Can you oh, believe so that? And he's like oh, a huge so dude with sunglasses. Yeah. What about work like that that really is about the toil and the triumph? Does that does that du duality turn you on? Does it inspire you? Is you mean creating interpreting work, your own torture? <laughs> I was thinking more like choose your own adventure, but yeah, I mean, yeah. do you feel like you always want to 
use a mirror? I mean, will that always be present to a certain extent in your work? Yeah, I mean that's that's what it that's what it all is. That's what all film is. That's what all to me. That's what all art is. Yeah, is a mirror. It's like a it's a funhouse mirror of the maker's experience, and you know because that's you can't make something in a vacuum. You know, it's all going to be tainted or colored by something you're trying to digest. You can't yeah you can't disassociate the, the, those two things. I'll never be able to make a work that's objective. Um, as hard as I've, I've tried, and it just doesn't work. And so it's. You know, maybe that's just how I make make things. But I think you know, any any great movie I've seen, or any great album I've listened to, or anything, it, it always has that backstory because it always has to be there. The, the last, Otherwise, why are you doing? The last question may draw us back to objectivity. Have you ever wanted to act in a film? Mm, no. Uh, you didn't equivocate, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just curious. So it's something you've kind of not wanted to go towards heretofore. I just, I don't understand. I don't understand acting. You know, I don't understand. And I'm, inter- I'm, I'm I, you know, and just recently I was asking my friend who's a director, I said, what's, what's the deal with actors? What's the deal? <laughs> were you Jerry, Se- were you Jerry Seinfeld? And, no, <laughs> No, I mean, exactly. Is your friend Jerry Seinfeld? What's the deal with actors? Um, Because I I don't understand that that need to wear a mask or wear a costume. And and she said something. She said something that really changed my view on it. And she said that, well, that's how they process their own emotions is by being given permission to go deep into somebody else's. And I was like, okay, I understand that, Hmm. you know, but... But at the same time, I don't know if I have that, if I, I don't know if I, if that's how I process things, you know? And I think actors, that's their outlet for one, for a specific reason. Would I want to be in a movie doing something funny? Yes, probably, because that, that would be, that would be great fun. A great, <laughs> a great souvenir for my life. But, um, coming, coming but in soon, terms of acting, coming soon to Arrested Development 3, uh, Ms. Zola Jesus. But it, it does beg the, the next question, which is really, I'm sorry, the last question. Now, this just in, Zola Jesus isn't your name. Can I argue it is a mask in a sense? Um, how do you reconcile that? And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to be critical here. I'm just saying one of my favorite questions to ask uh, singers is, is what you do at, acting you know whether let's say if you're in a music video or if you're living you know we i had leslie feist who i love on the show and Mm -hmm. she goes by the stage name feist now it is her surname but i said you know is feist a role and she kind of twisted it around to saying it kind of is so is zola jesus a character Is, is that a mask i don't think it's so much a character as it is a it's my, it's permission for me to lean into concentrated aspects of myself. Mm. So whether or not an actor or an actress is doing that, you know, it's, it's almost like this. It's yeah, it's a concentration of aspects of who I am. Um, is it the whole picture? No, I'm not on stage talking about how much I love Bob Odenkirk. You know, it's like I'm on stage (laughs) and I'm giving something very specific (laughs) because that's my statement, my artistic statement, but it's, it's one aspect of who I am as a person. So I wouldn't say I'm, it's a mask or a costume as much as it is just like, yeah, one tributary of what I could offer. 
You, you, see, you see how movie love is so complicated, and but you know what the best love tends to be. You you are rad, by the way. I think you're awesome. I I, I suspected it. I kind of when I was doing some digging on you, I said I, I don't know if I could get this all in, but you you have a huge brain, and I'm just really uh, super inspired by your thoughts. Thank you so much for being with us here. Next time we do it, we should do it in person or at the Guggenheim. Sounds rad. Somewhere fun. Hey, have, be well. If we can ever be of help, let us know, Zola. Take care of yourself. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's Bye-bye. fun. Bye. <laughs> Oh, uh, I think I, I think I hung up on her. You know, I ask her to bear her soul, and I hang up on her. <laughs> She's saying goodbye. I never know how to hang up on people. I mean, I, I, I never know how to end that. So anyway, <laughs> I'm going to stay away. Uh, th- I love that conversation, and Zola seems really amazing. And, you know, it's interesting how we slalom around or slalomed around different examples of filters, masks, metaphors and art is sort of a boy scout jamboree (laughs) of uh you know a a come to jesus way to take all of this other information and all this other energy and and focus it down so when you look at limitation the focusing down is a limitation so art by nature is is a limitation of life so what artists are doing and what we're asking them to do and what they've chosen to do is take a piece of, of everything a p- or a piece. They're only representing a piece or a metaphor or a gauze on a larger field. So when we look at limitations in our life, and for those of you listening who are creatives and think, oh, I'm limited, I'm limited economically, I'm limited digitally, socially, uh, parentally, that that that's your call. That's that's the alarm clock. It's not, oh, I have all this freedom. What shall I do with my freedom? I'll make art. Art tends to not live in freedom. It tends to live on counterweight. It tends to live on absence. And, and the art is the contribution. It makes up for the absence. So the art is the presence. So next time you look at your life, whether it's internal or external, oh, I live... You know, in this small town, I can't create. Well, first things first is to create because you live there, and then let's let's go from there. But principally speak, principally speaking, the work of art is the ground zero, and all of these names we've referenced: Tarkovsky, Barney, Wells, Wagner, Lynch, Bergman, on backwards through the talk. It sounds like they've had free reign. And obviously, their work is sort of the head of a needle, or the head of a pin. We see it in this sort of overblown form. You know what it's like? It's like if, you ever, if, you, if you've ever gone to a, a sporting match or a baseball game or even the taping of, of a TV show with a live audience that you've seen on TV, you, the first thing you, you feel when you look in the sta- stadium or the studio is, man, this is smaller than I thought it would be on TV. Because our mind, and it's not just because of photography. Photography widens things, but it's also the illusion, the romance that we pour into it. We pour romance into the works of art we love, and artists do too. You know, we talked about artists today who believe they were, their audience was God, him or herself. But the process is actually very small, and it can be intimidating, I think, to a lot of young creators if you think your canvas is the universe. Maybe. 
But then you have to redefine what is the universe. And the universe, hopefully, I think, within you is very small. We want to thank Zola Jesus, thankfully, for being with us today. Her work is so fascinating, and I encourage you to listen to it. I encourage you to go to Criterion.com and look at her Criterion list. I also encourage you to download us, Murmur Radio, (laughs) MurmurRadio.com every week. Um, Google iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. This show is a limitation. (laughs) I started this show because a lot of the guests I'm having on the show weekly, I couldn't have on publicly. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. I'm happy that I've been limited. See ya.